I mean, it never occurred to me that it was a big deal. What occurred to me was that the, the, the proposed policy was just fabulously stupid. I think I used it, it was a term I used in, uh, in the House. And so that was what was engaging my uh, attention. How, how, you know, how could we do something so criminally stupid? My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. Crispin Blunt, MP, is from a strong military family. From a commission into the cavalry and a subsequent career as a Conservative MP, he paints a perfect picture of a veteran in politics. But Crispin has led an interesting life, dealing with the questions he had over his sexuality to eventually coming out to his wife and family. We explore this in this episode and conclude that he lives his life as a way of paying back to all those who have campaigned before him. In a podcast first, Johnny asked him about the famous Popper speech, which leads to an interesting discussion on drug reform. You definitely do not want to miss this. It's time for you to meet our guest. Hello, Crispin. Delighted. Hi, John. Hello. Delighted for us to link up today. I've been longing to speak to you for a while now, and it's it's fantastic that we've got the opportunity uh, to have a chat. Um, but welcome to Veterans in Politics. And of course, you are a veteran in politics. But why on earth did you get involved in politics in the first place? Uh, if I trace it back, it does go back to my sort of military background. My dad was a professional soldier. Um, actually, you can see him over my uh, uh, it's over my right shoulder, over the left shoulder, I think, to the viewer. Uh, and uh, he started at the very bottom of the army and got to the top. Both my grandfathers were professional soldiers. Uh, one uh, was an ordinary soldier, joined in 1914 at the beginning of the Great War, and ended as a uh, sergeant major instructor at the driving and maintenance school at Bollington for the uh, uh, Royal, then Royal Tank Corps. Um, and the, my other grandfather um, uh, was a conventional uh, officer uh, background, uh, Norfolk professional family. Uh, his, his, my great-grandfather was a, uh, was a doctor. And he uh, ended as a major general. And by total coincidence, both my father and my maternal grandfather ended up having the same jobs, which was as head of either the Royal Corps of Transport or the uh, what was in my uh, grandfather's day, uh, the Royal Army Service Corps. So there's a, there was a little there was a little circularity uh, uh, there, um, and it was almost certainly only my uh, uh, mother's support and guidance that and her commitment to the relationship and to her children that then uh, enabled my father to have such an exceptional career um, of being war commissioner in 1944, uh, left the army in 46, 
uh, that, that's where he met my mother when he was uh, working really for the Foreign Office on the Control Commission in Germany, where my grandfather was then, I think as a retired general, was then running part of the, uh, the administration of Germany at the time and the immediate uh, aftermath of the Second World War. And that's where they uh, uh, that's where they met, and then they got married in 1949. I'm never entirely sure whether uh, my mother's father was aware that uh, my father's father wasn't actually commissioned because his the marriage certificate actually has a an officer's rank of it of captain, and I'm pretty certain my uh, paternal grandfather was never commissioned. So, but it's a, obviously a reflection of. Uh, the kind of hybrid uh, social relationship they had of the day of a sergeant major's son and a general's daughter getting married, which they were, were a rather uh, perhaps an unusual uh, product of the time. Uh, and uh, uh, so I grew up with that obviously very military background um, and uh, was obviously lucky enough with my dad then serving to be able to be uh, sent to uh, independent boarding school uh, with the uh, allowance that uh, officers uh, receive or all soldiers receive for uh, uh, educating their children because obviously they're posted uh, all over the place. Um, at age seven, I went off to, to school as they went off to Singapore and uh, age 13 went off to Wellington College. And it's probably, I mean, during my time at both schools, I got kind of super interested in, in wars and tales of daring do and all that sort of thing as a uh, from a, with a military background, uh, then uh, the, if you like, the, the politics and the current affairs that surround um, uh, uh, conflict then became, I suppose, really interesting. And all of that led, that sort of military history and history uh, then led ineluctably, I think, to an interest in current affairs and from current affairs into politics. And so uh, wanting to be a soldier and being interested in current affairs and being interested in politics ran side by side whilst I was at school. And then kind of by the age of 18, I then made this plan uh, that I would join the army and then uh, see if I could get the army to send me off to university uh, to study politics. And then uh, if all of that worked, about 10 years later would then be the time to think about whether I still wanted to uh, have a go and see if I could get into politics as a member of parliament. And uh, crudely, uh, 10 years later, I did. Um, so I tried and it worked. Wow. What a journey. And what a, a deep-rooted history that your family has within within public service of this country. And it seems to me, strikes me in just listening back, that there's a bit of an intertwinement between the military and political life. And would you say that this has had your own military service has had an impact on your approach to politics and serving again. Yes, I think so. I think it, it is that obviously there's a, a, a plainly an element of it of being wanting to be in the game and then be part of to be to be part of the story. So the interest in history and current affairs, and then how do you get engaged in uh, today's uh, what will be a history of today as a, a and a way of playing a role and being in it is to be a. Uh, a representative, uh, a politician in that way. But there's also heavily uh, uh, intertwined into it, that sense of public service um, that's come from, I so said, I've got a great grandfather who's a doctor. Uh, then uh, on, the, my, on the other side of, the, uh, uh, of my mother's family, uh, her 
uh, other grandfather was a uh, was a cleric, was a um, uh, the rector of Colton, um, who had uh, four children by his first wife, and then his wife died, and so as was the the way in sometimes in those days, the as uh, a vicar married the housekeeper. Um, the uh, housekeeper then gave birth to my grandmother, aged fifty, which is a uh, in nineteen hundred. Um, now that's a, a fairly remarkable story in itself. Um, and she was uh, quite a headstrong child. And I think she ran away in nineteen nineteen, um, having fallen in love with my grandfather. To uh, at which stage he was stationed in Palestine and Egypt. So she chased him out to the Middle East, uh, where they got married in St George's Cathedral in Jerusalem in nineteen twenty one. Uh, um, again, it's itself a, a fairly extraordinary story, uh, but uh, it's um, uh, that's that, that's the background, and then so there's uh, is quite a lot of sense of public service in that, and uh, much of uh, much of the reward of the job does come from helping other people. Yeah, you what an extraordinary story that your family seems to have had, and you've got your own extraordinary story too. And I think that really you are viewed as one of the most senior um, LGBT figures within power politics. Um, first of all, I mean, are you comfortable with that kind of labelling of of you as an individual, as I've suggested? And how far do you think we've come in terms of making it easier for people from the LGBT community to think about serving in public life? And do, do you think your own journeys helped inspire others, be they from the armed forces community or the LGBT community? Um, I'm not totally comfortable about it because uh, there are people who uh, have a much more profound contribution that they've made to uh, to leadership around LGBT issues and uh, who have uh, uh, chosen to take the risks of being out um, and uh, so and many other people, uh, both currently in politics, but people who never made it into politics, have paid with their uh, careers, their freedom, sometimes their lives, um, uh, to be themselves. Now, uh, I grew up as I think, as you've heard from my background, in a, in a very conventional uh, family in a, in a social sense, and there were no um, gay role models around. So if I was watching TV, I'd be seeing John Inman and uh, Larry Grayson as, as the sort of kind of gay things on television. And I'd be going, well, that, uh, that's not me. Um, uh, now, I do find these things called girls uh, really quite difficult. Um, and I, it doesn't, uh, and, but boys are totally illegal. And social death, uh, and uh, whilst one might have cheerful fantasies about boys' public schools, um, uh, certainly, my time. What, what, uh, extremely homophobic institutions. Um, so the idea that you were going to come to terms with yourself uh, uh, there um, was be fanciful. So what I understood about myself is there was something wrong with me. Um, and then uh, eventually, at, at uh, almost at the end of my time at university, um, uh, uh, I was successfully seduced um, uh, by a girl who fancied me. Um, and I had discovered sex, and uh, it was a hell of a lot better than no sex. And so there was a kind of few, I've, uh, I've cracked that um, uh, res- response to it because the alternative was not, um, in that sense, socially available. It would have been illegal as a, uh, I was at the time as a, as a soldier, so it's just really not to be contemplated. It just had to get 
that part of me just had to get buried. Um, but of course, uh, as a consequence of managing in that way, and uh, I then uh, didn't do what other people had done, which was, you know, I kept my career, I kept my job. Um, I was able to become a politician because as the uh, chairman of my association in, uh, I think the then chairman in 2001, when Alan Duncan, who was the first uh, MP to, uh, Conservative MP to come out, um, uh, my then association observed, well, we would never have selected him here. We have a nice family man. And you can imagine at that point what, uh, uh, and by that stage, I was uh, beginning to come to terms with myself, uh, with the, uh, with actually the working uh, environment in Parliament was so much more uh, gay friendly than anything I had ever come across before, um, and I was beginning to ask myself some fundamental questions about uh, about what was really was the truth about me. And that was when, if you like, the social construct I'd built around myself then began to unravel. Well, it's it's really generous of you to share that that very personal story and listening it to you from you. Has, has certainly touched me just you know as a human listening to that and i'm sure our listeners uh, will be thankful for how you well except of course i hadn't paid with my job i hadn't uh paid with my liberty i hadn't paid with my with my life which some people have who uh had led in this way and so uh i was able to come out in 2010 when i i'm a decision i at that point, it was simply to tell my wife, and then the, the uh, what followed followed because plainly uh, I was then going to be a separated man uh, uh, serving my constituents, and they obviously plainly begin to wonder why uh, my wife wasn't then attending events uh, with me. Um, uh, there was obviously the difficulty of uh, addressing the uh, end of the uh, the practical end of the marriage. Um, which obviously traumatic itself uh, personally, uh, but uh, so that was a statement was made. I was lucky enough uh, not to be, if you like, outed by a newspaper in uh, in a way that uh, one of my colleagues was, who who had followed exactly the same path in terms of uh, telling his wife, just didn't make it public, um, uh, and then was trying to live his new free life and was um was done in a newspaper scene um now by the time i uh, did it some of the reaction was well why do we need to know about this why is this news and that was a reflection of the change in situation the change in 2010 and so part of my uh work now and after after i um left the government in 2012 is then to my work in politics is to repay the uh, the contribution that uh, British uh, LGBT leaders made in changing British society uh, in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. The sacrifices they made, um, which I didn't. Um, now there are many parts of the world where uh, who are where Britain was on that journey back in the nineteen fifties or sixties or seventies. Um, and uh, I hope that my story can contribute uh, to accelerating uh, progression in those countries for their LGBT communities and indeed for their whole societies to get uh, healthier by uh, people being able to be themselves. Well, I certainly think your work will. And do you think that 
as a result of the work of of other others as as you've mentioned and the work that you're doing now your various campaigns that it's a far easier place for people in power and positions of leadership to be able to come out do you think we've changed much oh, I, 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 it is completely different to what it was in uh uh when i was growing up i mean i was 18 1970 i couldn't have contemplated um uh, taking the path that I've uh, uh, that I've done, it would have been wholly impossible, and been and been out, uh, and been out to myself, let alone anybody else. <laughs> um, it, I, I don't think it would have worked, uh, and that's not a healthy place to be. Uh, now I've been incredibly lucky, incredibly lucky. I you know, uh, had a conventional uh, life. Uh, certainly overtly until I was 50. I got two wonderful children. And had I come out at age 18 and I would have walked straight into the uh, the AIDS plague, um, and I suspect we wouldn't be having as we almost certainly would not, you wouldn't have been able to have a conversation with me now because too many people of that generation simply didn't make it. Um, uh, so I've, you know, I'm, and I'm, I hope I'm kind of naturally a glass half full person anyway, um, reflect back on just how fabulously lucky I've been, um, uh, and uh, you know the way the world has changed. Um, so that I've had you know, like the best of everything, and it's and it's which is why it's kind of very easy to to try and uh, I think to give back. So you kind of think you're in I'm in heavy debt to others, and it's and it's good to and it's it it, it feels better about then being in a in, in a place than to. Uh, to encourage others to be themselves and to and to try and open up uh, so far as one can the conversations that will help other societies then uh, and other parliamentarians in other countries understand that uh, sexuality is not a choice and once you get to that place then a whole bunch of uh, other things flow from that and the duty you as a member of parliament owe to the people you represent um, uh, then mean that you have got to ensure that uh, that if people um, uh, aren't exercising choice around their sexuality just as much as they do around their colour or their disability or other uh, 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 equality characteristics, um, you've got a duty to represent them probably. Well, I think that this conversation we're having today, I hope this will be part of that work. I know for me, the podcasts around mental health have had a profound impact around my own attitudes and dealing with my own mental health. So, and that's the power of these, this media of podcasts. We can really have these personal mm. conversations in the earbuds of our listeners. Um, and this is what this is all about to explore. Yes. What veterans in politics can really add to our politics and make it a better place, but then also get under the skin of the individuals and the stories and what motivates them themselves. And you've, you've been brave, not only just speaking today to me. But also in the chamber, and probably one of your most famous speeches has been around the government's policy towards amyl nitrate. And having watched that by design, that speech was made, I think, whilst I was chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, and uh, whilst I had, uh, had, I had uh, by then, I uh, chaired the Parliamentary Friends of the Kaleidoscape Trust from 2013 to 2015. In 2015, um, we d decided to uh, change that group into an all-party, formal all-party parliamentary group for global LGBT rights, was the 
objective. That's what we did. Uh, I then uh, got elected as chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, which was a, a fairly heavy-duty responsibility in Parliament, which would have meant I didn't have the bandwidth to do the APPG properly. But very happily, the first Conservative ever um, to be uh, selected as an out gay man, to be a candidate for Parliament in a winnable seat, Nick Herbert, um, uh, stepped up to, 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 to be the first chair of that group. Um, and he's done a fabulous job. He's, and he's gone on to be the first, and now he's Lord Herbert. Uh, he's now gone on to chair the uh, Global Equality Caucus, which is, uh, which is a, a global, a new global grouping of uh, LGBT uh, plus parliamentarians. So that's uh, so all of that's going uh, really well. But by um, uh, by 2016, obviously, I was then kind of committed on this part of the equality agenda. I also served as uh, a prisons minister, and I had seen just what an utter disaster our drugs policy was uh, in terms of what is happening to the criminal justice system as a consequence of using uh, drug use and drug misuse as a criminal justice issue rather than a public health issue. And so uh, that now, uh, since I've stopped being chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, that's the, now the other, if you like, arm of my work is around drug policy reform. And I suppose the popper speech just rolled down the track a little bit early and I became uh, fully committed and, and, and somehow linked the two. And uh, in uh, I, thinking of the, of the timing of this, I think it was in the, the, uh, shortly after the 2015 election, the government started uh, looking at, a, at a, uh, a drugs bill, which was going to lead to the, um, given the way it was, uh, the way it was going to classify Amon nitrators, they were going to make it illegal. So I had a quiet word with the drugs minister, um, uh, who looked at me, who was another ex-soldier actually, um, who then, but not one quite as enlightened as, um, uh, or as liberal as I am, uh, different wing of the party, um, who then sort of simply said, huh, yeah, your lot aren't going to like it. Um, and so I thought I was at much point um, continuing the conversation with him. Uh, and one of my other colleagues actually did a lot of the groundwork in Parliament, Mike Freer, uh, I'm doing it properly, but it, and then the, the Home Affairs Select Committee looked at the issue and they recommended it shouldn't be criminalised and else. And then we got to the final day, if, if you like, as the legislation was going through the last gasp of the report stage, uh, when MPs have the opportunity to table amendments in order to change the legislation. And I had uh, actually, you know, I think, quite encouraged my LGBT colleagues to vote against the, or to vote for the amendment, which would have not criminalised it. And then I thought I probably better speak to it. Um, and actually, that speech had about that much preparation. Um, and so I rolled up in the chamber uh, as this amendment was being considered and kind of gave an off-the-cuff, I think it was a five or seven-minute speech. I, I, uh, and it was, I, to say the least, it wasn't exactly over-prepared. Um, and I certainly hadn't uh, considered for a minute that it was then going to lead to me on the front page of The Sun the following day. Um, uh, and I actually closed down any commentary on it um, as soon as I realised it had gone, you know, the typical uh, kind of thing that I probably should have worked out that the media might enjoy it, um, uh, uh, rather more than I had done, and, and I closed the, closed the commentary down. Um, I was kind of knowing in the background that the spines of my poor wretched children were snapping with embarrassment. <laughs> Well, for those interested in what we're referring to as the popper speech, you'll certainly be able to find that on YouTube. Um, and, and the thing I'm fascinated about 
is just how you, Crispin, were able to channel any emotions around something so passionate. How do you control and, and speak about subjects that you're so passionate about? We've seen that in some of the recent veterans that have spoken, whether it be the maiden speeches of Johnny Mercer or Stuart Anderson um, and many others, when they're speaking about something that's so personal and so that they're so passionate about how, what skills and how do you approach giving, even if it's off the cuff, those kind of speeches in parliament? Well, actually my passion was about the public policy engaged here. Um, it was a, to some degree my, okay, something I, yeah, I happen to know about. Um, but there's no big deal. Um, and it occurred to me that it was a big deal. What occurred to me was that the, the, the proposed policy was just fabulously stupid. I think I used it, it was a term I used in uh, in the House. And so that was what was engaging my uh, attention. How, how, you know, how could we do something so criminally stupid um, as then to drive another bunch of people uh, out of obeying the law around uh, around our drugs policy? Um, I mean, since I've uh, got into the drug policy reform space, it's become horribly clear to me that almost nobody obeys the law around our drugs policy. I mean, I did a debate in the Durham Union Society speaking alongside the then chief constable of the Durham Constabulary um, to the freshers at Durham University, about 300 students uh, newly uh, newly arrived at Durham, uh, at this debate, and the chief constable asked them how many of them had done illegal drugs. These are 18, 19 year olds. 80% of them put their hands up. I mean, 80% of them confessed to a crime to the chief constable. I'm impressive, but it just shows how much respect there is for our laws out there. And if, you're, if your laws are in that kind of place, and as we discovered with 100% of the candidates, the Conservative leadership um, last time around, having to uh, explain their previous illegal behavior, you might just think that there's something wrong with your laws if they are not being obeyed um, uh, in, that, uh, in that way. Uh, and you might just want to think um, that it might be time to, uh, uh, to recast um, how we deal with uh, the misuse of drugs in our society. Um, <laughs> which is such a blinding glimpse of the obvious for anyone who's engaged in policy in this space, um, is that the current way of addressing it is, uh, it simply isn't working and is making the situation a, a very great deal worse than it needs to be. A very great deal worse than it needs to be. I mean, it is positively catastrophic. Wow. So uh, obviously uh, policy-driven campaigns, but would you describe yourself as, as a campaigner? Well, I, I suppose I am now in a sense that as I've taken at this stage of my parliamentary and political life, is that you can, I mean, I had anticipated when I got elected as chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in 2015, that you'd probably serve two terms, so that would take me through to 2025. That would probably be me done in Parliament, and I could be a like, grand panjandrum on the parliamentary foreign affairs circuit and uh, I'd chair the committee and try and do a good job overseeing the government's uh, foreign policy and the uh, position of the, uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Office. Um, and two years later, I found that my plans have been upended by the Remain Parliament elected unexpectedly in 2017. Um, and uh, I needed to find something else uh, to focus on. And my choice uh, then was to focus on uh, global LGBT rights and drug policy reform and to uh, channel my uh, efforts actually in, a, in terms of original contribution into those two areas, whilst obviously trying to sustain an interest in foreign affairs and uh, and, and plainly, the uh, the 
the duties of, upon any constituency MP to continue to represent their constituency, their constituents well. Um, but I'm obviously uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, well aware that uh, an interest in controversial areas like drug policy reform is unlikely to advance my uh, ministerial career prospects. But since I assumed they were near zero anyway, it wasn't a great sacrifice. <laughs> Brilliant. So I guess, using that military term, uh, no plan survives first contact uh, in terms of... Indeed, exactly. <laughs> very good very good appreciation. Where you think your career was going. But um, I guess for, for the many veterans or even people from the LGBT community or those interested in drug reform that might be listening into this episode of Veterans in Politics... Would, and that might be inspired by your approach to campaigning and trying to change things that you're passionate about. What would be a bit of golden advice for those scratching around thinking, do you know what? I, I'd quite like the sound of this. I'd quite like to get involved in politics myself. Is there a bit of advice that you'd like to impart upon the audience? Um, well, if you're interested, go for it. That would be my... Because you'll never... Uh, uh, you'll, if you don't give it a try, you'll never know. Um, as to how far you might have got. And what um, I, I think you'll be surprised about is actually just how uh, just how easy it can be to get on in politics. If you've got a, if you've got a bit of passion and a bit of talent um, and you want to get things done, uh, then uh, and you want the uh, privilege of representing people. Now, you've then also got to remember that politics is very largely a team game. Um, and this is perhaps where I'm... Uh, uh, I'm not as acute as as, as others who, are, who have played the team game rather better than I have. Um, so you do have to be able to cooperate with colleagues. You don't get things done generally on your own. You've got to, you do have to work with others. That's why we have political parties because um, uh, you've got to bring like-minded people together. And that requires a deal of, uh, of, you know, of uh, cooperation and teamwork. And actually, I, you know, I had five years as an opposition whip and that's, if you like, that's the, the kind of Praetorian guard that's then around the then whoever is the then leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, but your, uh, you know, your, your job is then to absolutely be the team. Um, you, you don't speak in the chamber, by and large. You sacrifice, if you like, your, uh, you take that sort of vow of public omerta so that you're, uh, uh, you're trying to make sure the whole team prospers. Um, and it's a it's kind of a great place to be in the uh, within the whip's office. I think at any stage, in order to uh, to, to to have that sense uh, where your individualism is then uh, kind of properly suppressed, uh, because you're then trying to make work for the success of the of the whole institution. Uh, but I, it's a, I don't know which policy is a bit like cricket. There is set, there is there is room for all sorts of different skill sets and talents. Whether it's a you know a, a, uh, a droopy left arm spinner who can't field and can't bat, but I can actually bowl rather brilliantly, um, uh, to the to the great all rounder or to the the very steady um, opening bat or steady middle order player, um, there is it, it is uh, it is a team game. Or dare I say, it, someone from the armed forces with room for individual talent. So um, uh, so it's uh, uh, at least I hope that metaphor holds. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. So there you go. You heard it first from Chris Bin today. Uh, just do it. Just get on and do it. Give it a go. And uh, do thank you so much for having this conversation today. It's been fascinating. Thank you for being so open 
and so honest and sharing your story. And I just hope that this has gone on to help others and inspire them to stand up and serve again. Chris Bain. Right. And I hope, well, note the tie, note the cushions in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.